From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that fuses education with fun. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg, and today's title is Fusion Power. Hey, Chad. Hey, Mike. So I kind of pestered you about doing this episode because recently in the news, there was much to do uh, about an announcement that fusion power had been achieved or, or something about fusion power. And I guess, A, I thought that we had already done fusion on Earth somewhere, and so I wasn't quite sure. I guess I wanted to talk to you to see what was new that was accomplished here. Mm-hmm. And why is this interesting? And what can we learn from this announcement? Because I'm, I'm always a little cautious about how things get covered in the media. So I want to go straight to a physicist and talk about it. Well, I was actually surprised because I, I did not know that a lot of fusion research was still being done. Back in, I think, the 80s, there was a lot of talk about something called cold fusion. Uh-huh. And we can eventually get to why that would be so exciting. But then more research was done and people realized, oh, no, these people made a mistake. They didn't actually achieve what they thought they were doing. And so cold Wasn't fusion... that thought that that was even there was even some like suspicion of fraud in some of those results. Is that true? That's you what I remember, too. But I didn't want okay. to say that. OK, you can cut that out if it's not true. Well, no, we'll keep that in. And yeah, that there we'll are deal yes, with the legal. There are charges. There are charges of fraud. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, we won't go into that. But then as I was reading up, trying to get on board with all this stuff, I realized there's actually quite a bit of research being done about this. And I don't know why this particular story cut on so much in our newspapers and so forth, because a lot of this work is actually happening in Europe. And I kept looking at all these news articles that were like six months before that and six months before that and six months before that, where there's a steady drum of people having incremental steps of improvement in this whole process. But anyway, we'll get into all of that stuff because it's it's actually a very difficult puzzle to solve. And we'll talk about why such a hard puzzle to actually do, uh, why people want to do it in the mm-hmm. first place, why it would be so awesome to do it, and also why it's so far off still. But okay, I think before we delve into that, let's let's take a few moments and talk about some of the terms that we're going to be just throwing around and concepts that we'll be using a lot. Atoms are made up of a nucleus that's surrounded by a certain number of electrons. Okay. And we've had episodes about the periodic table and how there's all these different elements that have a different number of protons and electrons, and that's how we define them. The nuclei themselves are much heavier than the electrons. They are made up of protons and neutrons. The protons mm-hmm. are these positively charged things, and that's why electrons, the same number of protons are how many electrons are orbiting around the nucleus. And that's how we define the elements. If you look on a periodic table, the number of the elements is really telling you how many protons are in the nucleus there. Okay. And then I seem to remember that protons and neutrons have pretty similar masses. Yes, that is true too. Okay. So on a periodic table, the number in the top is how many protons there are. And then oftentimes it's at the bottom of the square tells you what the mass is. And usually for the lighter elements, the mass is about double what the number of protons is. So Mm -hmm. for lighter elements, generally speaking, you have the same number of protons as you have neutrons. But as you get to heavier and heavier elements, that changes because basically you have more and more neutrons in the core, in the nucleus. Okay. Basically, the reason for that is that protons are positively charged. So like things repel and opposites attract in electrostatics and stuff. So if I have too many protons together, protons don't want to be together. So they will often repel each other and push each other apart. And so the neutrons are there sort of as glue to help kind of keep it all stable. But what that means is that you could have different, the same element, so the same number of protons, but you could have one nucleus has a different number of neutrons than another nucleus. And when that happens, they're still the same element and they'll behave elementally the same way. 
but we call them different isotopes of the same thing. And so by behave elementally the same way, you mean that they will basically do all the same kinds of bonding with other kinds of atoms to make larger molecules in the same way? And do they have like roughly the same kind of like boiling or melting temperatures? And yeah, okay. they do. Yeah. Okay. So okay. for instance, maybe people have heard of carbon-14. That's a way that we can date things that are relatively young, as opposed to the stable version that we're mostly made up of is carbon-12. And right. the 12 means there's, so carbon has six protons by definition. And so then the 12 means it's the sum of all the protons and neutrons. So carbon 12 means that you've got six protons and subtract that from 12, you get six neutrons then. Whereas carbon 14 has six protons and eight neutrons. But chemically, they we have some of the carbon 14 in our bodies right now. And it's just doing all the things it does. You right. know, it makes the bonds and you know it can make carbon dioxide. It does everything else the same as normal okay. carbon would. But C14, correct me if I'm wrong, that is unstable. Is that true? That that's is the correct. radioactive one. Okay. Yep. And so okay. eventually the carbon 14 will turn into something else. Okay. Another difference here is since, so today we're going to primarily talk about fusion, but whenever people are thinking about atomic and nuclear power and so forth, what they're actually thinking about is fission. Okay. And so the difference is fusion is combining things like lighter elements into heavier elements. And fission is breaking apart heavier elements into something lighter. Right. Okay. So for instance, a common one to think about would be like uranium. If you have the right isotope of uranium, you can break that apart into some lighter elements. And when you do that, then you get some energy out of it. Okay. Whereas if you have some lighter elements, things like hydrogen primarily, if you can combine hydrogen together, then you'll get energy out of doing that. That's called fusion. It turns out that if you combine hydrogen, you get a whole lot of power. If you combine helium, you get a little bit less power. And eventually it turns around that around iron is the point where you don't get any more energy out of it by combining heavier and heavier things. Oh, okay. And so if something were to naturally happen, combining them to get more energy out of it would be things that are lighter than iron and ripping them apart to get energy out of it, or fission would be things that are heavier than iron. Okay. When you say combine, we're not talking about like taking two hydrogens and sticking them together so that you've got H2 gas or something. We're talking at the nuclear level, their nuclei are, are joining together so that one hydrogen has a proton and perhaps a neutron and another hydrogen has a proton and perhaps a neutron and you stick them together because now we've got two protons by definition that's helium right yep okay yeah that's a good point that we're not that chemistry is something that happens at energy levels that we normally have on earth mm -hmm. but i'm talking about things that are much more energetic to actually combine two nuclei together okay and that takes a lot more energy and we'll get into what i mean by that can i can i hit pause Woo. yeah so a long time ago, you sort of gave me this spatial model of a nucleus and kind of how to think about if a nucleus were the size of a basketball or this room that we're in or something like that. Right. You told me that the electrons to scale, the electrons would be orbiting within something like, I don't know, several miles. Right. Yeah. And so, so it's literally mostly open space. Yeah. And so... Okay. And yeah, so this... chemistry is what's happening among those electrons in all of that open space. And what we're talking about with this fusion is getting all the way down to that central core and cramming those two things together. So you've got all this sort of chemistry land, open space to overcome before right. those nuclei even get near each other. Right. And generally what is happening when you're doing this is you actually rip all those electrons away hmm. so that they can combine without running into those along the way. Hmm. And I mean, that happens naturally when you just have high enough energies, but 
Yeah. So you're right. So we're talking about very energetic things here. Now, uses of fission on Earth would typically be things like, well, uh, bombs, nuclear bombs. Uh Almost all nuclear bombs involve fission in some way. So I've heard of A-bombs. Is that a fission bomb? A bomb? bomb? A bomb, <laughs> a bombs. Yeah, is that for atomic? Is that so? That's a fission bomb. That's a fission bomb. Yep. I've heard of H bombs. Yeah. So we can talk about that a little bit later as well. That actually involves fusion, but in order to trigger the fusion, they actually have core of hydrogen somehow in the middle, surrounded by a fission bomb. And so what happens is that first they set off the fission bomb, which huh. has this huge nuclear explosion. And that compresses and crushes the core to trigger all the fusion to fuse. And so then that gives you a much, you know, like 10 times bigger explosion than you would with just the fission itself. Oh, so that's an H-bomb. Yep. Okay. I've heard of F-bombs. Yeah. Actually did one when when we first started out here. But yeah, but that's a different thing. So yeah, in case people were confused. Let's see. Oh, all nuclear plants are also fission. So Uh if you see a nuclear plant, that's all fission going on in there. And and basically what's happening, so this may be interesting, maybe not, I don't know. But with fission, the thing that really triggers the reaction is that if a neutron were to hit the nucleus, it would actually rip it apart and trigger Mm. fission to happen. And what's interesting about this is that you could have a runaway reaction of that because when you have that fission reaction... I'm thinking of uranium-235 specifically here. What will happen then is when it fizzes, it will actually break apart the nucleus, create two different elements, and spit out three neutrons just from the reaction itself. Ah, so then those neutrons can then go on and propagate that to three other... Right, and that's Uh how you make a bomb, is that you just let it happen. You just trigger it so that a bunch of neutrons just start cascading. And so this one element triggers three more reactions to happen, and each of those have three more reactions happen, and on and on and on. So that's uncontrolled. But then to control it, as you would in a power plant, you basically just block some of these neutrons from reaching other stuff. Mm. And so oftentimes they'll have them in the form of rods. And all they have to do is have each rod be surrounded by this tube of lead usually, which will block the neutrons. And so if you want a little bit of reaction to happen, you just raise the rods just a little bit. And then those neutrons can scatter back and forth and trigger more stuff. And then if you want to have less of it, you just lower them back down into the lead so that they don't hit each other anymore. Okay. Uh, And so that's a nice controlled reaction for how you can create power. Because basically these rods are all, first of all, they're all stored in water. And basically these reactions are releasing a whole lot of energy. And so then the energy from those reactions is used to basically just boil the water. And then that water turns into steam. That steam then turns a propeller, basically. And then that's your power plant, which is the same way we make other power. You know, if if it's a coal plant, we're just burning coal to boil water to turn the turbines and go from there. So the big difference is all, how are we creating the steam? Right. Okay. And so in some ways that's clean because if we're burning coal, we're releasing a lot of CO2 and a lot of other soot and things like that into the atmosphere. But the downside there is that once you're done with the rods, you still have this radioactive material that will remain radioactive for you know millions of years. Mm-hmm. So once we have these rods and they've been spent, we have to find some place to actually store them forever, basically. Right. And at least here in the United States, there have been a lot of fights about that. Like the government picked a place in Nevada because it's a desert and they figured not too many people around, but there are enough people around to fight. And I don't think there's using it still. Yeah, I feel like I've read somewhere that way more of our of the spent rods are sort of like in the temporary holding pools than are supposed to be because a final resting place for them just can't be agreed upon. Yeah, I would believe that. Yeah. So that's a bit of an issue, right? And that and uh-huh. so that's fission. So that's fission. 
Okay. So and so that's why fusion would be great because fusion, the byproduct of that is just helium. So you can make like balloon animals and stuff like that. <laughs> can make each other we can make ourselves talk funny. We exactly. And so I mean there's no downsides to that whatsoever. And so <laughs> but then also like the fuel for it is hydrogen, right? And so we can get hydrogen just from water, basically. We can just break water molecules and and take the hydrogen away on one side and, and use that for fuel. Mm-hmm. And so, so ideally, that's why people have been talking about having a fusion reactor for a long time. Because if you could make that happen, that would really be a cleaner fuel. Because basically, you would have fusion happening. That would still be used to boil water and right. make steam and turn turbines. So that all process would be the same. But the reactions to this, we would not be releasing carbon into the atmosphere. And we would not have these radioactive rods anymore. Right. So that, so that sounds like a very big deal, like when we get to that point. Yeah. And also, it is worth noting, I kind of blew past this a little bit earlier, but if you're fusing some hydrogen together, that releases a lot more energy than breaking apart the uranium does. And so Mm. you can get so much more energy out of the hydrogen than you could out of the fission process that not only is it the byproducts are not bad to have, it produces more energy. So what is fusion? Well, fusion is a process that happens naturally in stars. Basically, that's what our sun is doing right now. Our sun is just a big ball of hydrogen gas for the most part. Mm. And so it is just taking that hydrogen gas in the core, in the very center of the sun is the only place this is happening. But in the center of the sun, the hydrogen is combining together. And there are a few steps here. Basically, it's converting hydrogen and turning it ultimately into helium. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that is what is heating the sun. That's what is heating everything on Earth. Now, in order to do that, you have to have very high temperature and very high pressure. Okay. And so how how do you get both of those things initially? Well, for a star, the way that happens is all the gas is just kind of collapsing in on itself. Collapsing in on itself from the pull of gravity on each other? Is that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so the, everything in the very middle is packed together really, really tightly, right? I mean, think about like if you swim to the bottom of a swimming pool, your ears are popping right? because you have this extra pressure of all the water above you. So at the sun, I mean, the center of the sun is actually 340 billion times what we have here on Earth. Oh, okay. And so the center of the sun is very, very high pressure. And the temperature at the center is about 15 million Celsius. (laughs) These are just sort of like numbers I can barely even wrap my head around as far as like a pressure and a temperature. Yeah. Now, Uh. I mean, it's it's worth kind of talking about why we need both of these is that remember... What we have are are these protons that have the same charge. They don't want to run into each other. Mm. They, think about if you had like two really strong magnets, right? And you had yeah. a North Pole and a North Pole, and you're trying to push them together. When you're far apart, you don't feel much resistance there. But as you try to bring them in closer and closer, it gets harder and harder to push it. Right. And that's ha- happening with the protons as well, is that when they're far apart, they don't really see each other. But as you get closer and closer, the forces from them get stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. And so in order to make them actually converge together, they have to be moving really, really fast. Mm. And we've talked about this before, and actually pretty soon we're going to be talking about what temperature means to a physicist quite a bit here in in the next coming weeks. That's just a little preview just to get people excited. (laughs) But basically for a physicist, temperature is just a a measure of how fast the atoms are moving around. Mm -hmm. And so in the sun, basically, we need them moving so fast that they can get past the repelling of each other and actually make contact with each other. Mm. Now, this is also a random process. And so you also need the high pressure because that just means it's really, really dense. So that increases the probability that that they'll actually hit something and 
go the correct direction. Because if they're not mm-hmm. directly head on, then they're just going to kind of swerve from each other. Okay. So for the sun, you need both the very high pressure and the very high temperature. But that is ridiculously hard to do. <laughs> Here on Earth, right? I mean, the temperature itself is very hard to do, but it's, that's actually manageable, surprisingly. It's the pressure that is the real constraint here. And so if you don't have the same high pressures, you have to compensate by increasing the temperature, basically increasing mm. how fast they're moving. And so, so that makes sense to me why you would need a fission bomb to set off a fusion bomb. Yeah. Then. yeah. Okay. And yeah. that is allowing it to trigger this ridiculous reaction on. Okay. By the way, it's, it's maybe worthwhile talking about what the steps of fusion actually are in the sun. Yeah. Because you start out, so hydrogen is just a proton. There's, it's just one proton. There are no neutrons around it. Okay. Whereas helium, the most common form, the stable form of helium is helium four, which means that it's got two protons and two neutrons. So somehow you have to build up to that. And so the first combination is just two hydrogen atoms bump into each other. But helium two is, it doesn't exist. That's not stable even for a picosecond of time. It just Mm. won't do that. However, what often happens in the sun, in fact, is that one of those hydrogen atoms, one of those protons will actually flip sides. It'll turn into a neutron and that forms H2, which is one proton, one neutron. And that is stable. Okay. And we give that a special name. We call that deuterium. So question. Yeah. This proton switching teams or however you put it to be a neutron. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, it's something called beta decay. Oh, okay. And it actually happens quite a bit. And and in fact, we talked about carbon-14 earlier today, that's actually beta decay as well, is that the carbon-14, one of those neutrons will go the other direction, it'll turn back into a proton. And so then the carbon-14 will actually turn into nitrogen when it decays. Okay, because I was was literally going to ask you, so where are the neutrons coming from? And this answers that question, though. Yeah, so what ultimately happens is, I I like to think of it instead as a proton and an electron can combine. Okay. Technically, that's not correct, but for our purposes, it's good. Okay. And what that does then is that the charge will be conserved, because if you add up the charges of a proton and neutron together, you get zero. Mm -hmm. And the mass is pretty much the same. However, you also have to expel something else. And this is called a neutrino that also shoots out. So proton and electron create a neutron and a neutrino. And we've actually had an episode about neutrinos and how they're formed in the sun. And we actually can measure those neutrinos. And we know that is the process that's happening. Okay. So to get back to the sun then, so mm-hmm. it can't be the case that two protons can come together and, and remain together. However, if one of them switches teams, undergoes this beta decay to be a neutron, now we've got protons stuck to neutron and that we call deuterium. Yes. So then what? Well, then two deuterium nuclei can actually combine. Okay. For whatever reason, it doesn't want to do that as a straight shot to make helium-4. One of those neutrons will spit out, and then it'll make helium-3 instead. And then a little bit later, two helium-3 atoms will combine and make the helium-4, and also spitting out two neutrons in that process. Huh. Okay. That seems a little more Baroque than necessary, but... But it works. It's not so Baroque that it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) The dad jokes are flowing today. (laughs) Yeah, they are. But I think that those neutrons can actually be used. They can be captured by a hydrogen atom and make deuterium in other ways. Okay. And so anyway, in the process of this happening, there's heaps of energy being generated. Yeah. Okay. And is that contributing to the overall high temperature of the sun that then keeps propelling it along? Mm -hmm. Okay. So there is this equilibrium going on that It makes the sun hot enough that it can keep doing this reaction at a certain rate. Mm. But I I wanted to talk about that specifically because the deuterium, that's actually the fuel that all these experiments 
are using here mm. on Earth is deuterium. So they're skipping that first step and they're trying to go straight to the deuterium. Okay. And in fact, they also use another isotope, which has one proton and two neutrons in it in these reactions. And that's something called tritium. Mm. Anyway, I wanted to talk about that just so that we would have it up on the board so that we could refer to it again. Okay. So anyway, here on Earth, we've had the H-bombs, but that's uncontrolled, uh -huh. right? And so for fission, it's easy to control it. We can just put them in these sleeves and capture some of the neutrons from doing other stuff. It's a little bit harder with fusion, though. So to be controlled, though, we have a lot of other issues. Mm -hmm. Number one, the amount of energy that it releases is huge. And it raises the temperature, which will vaporize basically <laughs> any material that we have. So if you make a chamber of this, it will immediately vaporize the, the chamber itself. So Okay. Um, so you can't even have a container to hold it in. Right. And, okay. and so that's problematic. That's <laughs> step one. <laughs> Find suitable container. Well, actually, the way they do that is they, they use magnetic traps instead. Oh. And so by using magnets, you can actually trap these charged particles together and keep them tightly packed together. And and, and it's actually kind of cool. So they, they use multiple magnets, which just basically pinch all the charged particles down together. And so the most common magnet design was actually designed by the Russians initially. Tokamak magnet design. Hmm. That's actually an acronym, which makes sense if you're Russian, but it... <laughs> <laughs> okay. like the, the first word is toroid. Which is a type of magnet, it's just like a donut oh, okay. magnet. I thought it was like Sergei Tokamak. No. But so okay. what they will do is they'll actually, first of all, create a plasma, meaning that they strip away all these electrons from the atoms themselves. And that makes all these be charged particles. So, And then the magnets can really control them and direct them where they need to go very well. The second issue, though, is that once you have that reaction, things tend to blow apart. And so you have to have some walls that will be able to keep them contained, basically. Even with the magnets, you know, you have a reaction and some of the neutrons are going to shoot back out in the reaction. So you have to catch those somehow. And you have okay. to catch other things that might leave the traps. Any of the charged stuff will stay in the trap, but other things will fly out of there. So you have to have Got walls that, that will contain those. Because and, so the, it, the, your, this is a process that's generating neutrons and those yeah. neutrons are not going to be contained by an electrical trap. Right. Because they're not charged and they're so they're not responsive to it. Okay. So then your container has to deal with this flood of neutrons that are flying out. Yeah. And so what and what's dealing with that then? Even though those are farther away, it's still very hot stuff. So you still have to find some material that can handle that. You know, the farther away you are from that source, the cooler it will be. But that means you have to make everything bigger because you don't want your magnet coils and so forth. They have to be bigger than whatever your walls are, right? They have to be mm -hmm. out of the way. Otherwise, they're all going to melt and then everything ruins itself as well. Now, in principle, you could use something that if it conducts the heat well enough, then it could draw the heat out of that system. And then that heat could be used to boil the water and turn the turbines and do the rest of the mm -hmm. steps. And so initially, they were using walls of graphite, which is a form of carbon, but those weren't as efficient as they would, had hoped. And so more recently, they've tried tungsten, which is the metal with the highest melting point mm. that we have. But even then, it they don't last very long. Mm. <laughs> so that's the problem. All right. So we, we've got like two issues here. We've got, we do have a way to contain it all, which is the magnet. We have a way to sort of protect the magnet coils themselves a little bit if we have a wall there to stop the outflux of all the stuff. Now we still have to, though, heat up the atoms to a very high temperature. So let's talk about that. So the news article that you specifically referenced was at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory down in California, and they used lasers. I think I read they used 190 different lasers, all pointed to the middle. And basically the lasers themselves, they were doing two things. Those lasers were heating up the target, mm -hmm. and they were also pushing on the target. So they were basically compressing the target to get it in mm. really tightly packed. 
And so both of those, they were able to ultimately trigger the fusion to happen. Help me understand just a little bit more what is happening at the interaction between that laser and where it's actually striking, say, the hydrogen. Is the high energy of the photon, or am I using the right word for the laser? Are we talking sure. photons here? Mm -hmm. And is that energy, I don't know, transferring momentum or something to the hydrogen ions that then makes them energetic enough that they will fuse with a neighbor? Is that what's happening? Yeah, so you, you've got all the right words there. That Okay. <laughs> Okay. That light does transfer momentum. Okay. And what that means is that think of like a billiard table, right? Where, uh -huh. where you've got the cue ball and you hit another ball. And so it's the same thing that light can do that as well, that you're shooting a photon at an atom and it can push it in such a way to speed it up in the right direction that it's trying to go. So you need a lot of photons though to make this really push them around. Mm. So it's not just like, all right, I'm going to turn on my flashlight real quick. You know, that's not enough light hitting it to, to trigger this. <laughs> They had a bunch of high-powered lasers all directed towards the middle. And so each deuterium atom is probably being bombarded, you know, very, very quickly to get them to really heat up. The photons are the things that are pushing the atoms around. And, and it's weird to think that they can do that. However, again, another teaser, we will be talking about other experiments here soon uh, where light was used specifically to push atoms around as well. So hmm. when they talk about these 192 lasers, are they all sort of evenly distributed, all pointing at the same thing? So that's being kind of compressed evenly yeah. all the way around. Okay. Um, what, what I was it? That, I don't think it's totally it? even, but okay. Because well, there had to be a rod sticking in there to hold their target. But. Oh, I see. Okay. What was the target again? I don't know how they, they had it in this form, but they had a mix of 50% deuterium and 50% tritium. Okay. And I think their target was actually in a little cell. And I don't know what that was made out of, but it was a clear cell. Mm. And basically when they did that, when they shined all the lasers in there and they triggered the fusion, the cell that was holding it all just vaporized almost instantaneously. But they also had this reaction of a lot of heat shooting out of it. Mm. Some other techniques that people have done are to have the magnets pinch very tightly all the ions together, which is increasing the pressure tremendously. Uh -huh. And there's people who do a lot of thermal stuff. There's something called adiabatic compression or expansion. And so basically, if you crush the volume really, really small quickly, then the temperature spikes up very quickly mm. as well. You're probably more familiar with the opposite of that. You've heard of dry ice, right? Sure. I actually just got some steaks in the mail and I haven't had the steaks yet, but the it was packed in dry ice. And so I, I had a lot of fun bubbling the things. <laughs> anyway, that's how I have fun. So I've already enjoyed yeah. that present. <laughs> what? This dry ice came with bonus steaks? <laughs> awesome. No, it's great yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, dry ice is made through the opposite adiabatic expansion, which is that if you have a bunch of compressed CO2 gas, like with mm -hmm. a, a fire extinguisher, for instance, a CO2 uh -huh. fire extinguisher, when you release it out and lower the pressure dramatically to let it expand as fast as it wants, it gets really, really cold. Uh -huh. And like if you shoot a fire extinguisher, you, you're basically shooting dry ice at the fire. And so what they do to make blocks of this, they just collect that and compress it down into a block. Mm. So anyway, people are probably more familiar with the adiabatic expansion because of that, because you can see it. Mm -hmm. But in these tests, they do the opposite of that. They compress it down really quickly, and that causes it to raise temperature tremendously. That's not what Lawrence Livermore did. That's what other groups are doing. Mm. 
So I feel like one of the big points that some of these articles made was something about how if you compared the amount of energy of the laser beams that were trained on whatever it is to the energy that was released by that fusion, that there was more energy released by the fusion than there was in the sum of all of the laser beams going in. Do I have that right? Right. So that was the big deal that they made the announcement for, was that this was the first time that if they added up how much energy went into the reaction, they got more energy coming out than what they put into it. Okay. So that is one issue at the moment, is that that is the first reaction where they've gotten more energy out than what they put in. Yeah, that's cool. Um, But even then, that particular reaction, like I said, the, the way they were doing it, which is different from how other groups are doing it. They did not have a magnetic trap at all. They Mm. just had this one cell that they stuck sort of in the beams and triggered that to boom, basically. Mm -hmm. So that was not really a control thing. That was just to say, can this work at all? And then they got it to fuse and they got more energy coming out of it than what they put in. But it lasted a fraction of a second and it vaporized the cell and it was not a controlled reaction at that point. Okay. Another issue, even if you are using the magnets, though, is that the walls themselves will vaporize very quickly. They're supposed to catch all the excess heat and all the excess energy and so forth, but they will deteriorate. The best that's happened is has been about within minutes that they would completely just fall apart and stop working. And so that's going to be another piece that they'll have to work on. Because, you know, if you want a power plant to work, you can't just keep replacing the walls every few minutes. Right. Now, other groups have created sustained reactions that have gone on for a little bit longer than the Lawrence Livermore experiment did. So they've actually gotten some fusion going. They've been able to add more fuel to it to keep it going for a little bit longer. But the longest sustained reaction that is on record so far lasts about five seconds. Mm-hmm. So again, that's not long enough to run <laughs> continuously. So, right. so there's still things that have to be done. Mm-hmm. So right now, everyone is working on the proof of concept itself is a very hard experiment for all these groups. Building mm-hmm. the magnet that is strong enough to contain everything to somehow trigger the reaction in the first place, whether you're using lasers or doing other things. All this stuff takes, it's a whole lot of engineering and and work to get just to that point. Cool. So, I mean, long story short, this is a very technological problem. There are a lot of limitations to overcome. And at the moment, there's no perfect solution to do it long term. Uh But we're in the early stages of just showing like, is it possible at all to do any of this stuff? Yeah. So it's probably still decades away. However, if we could make this work out, if we could overcome some of these challenges, it would provide energy that could be used for electricity and doing all sorts of other things. And it would be a clean energy source. Yeah. Excellent. Well, hopefully that happens in our lifetimes. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for walking me through that, Mike. I think I have a better handle on it. Cool. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for a future episode, email us at chriscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time. Thanks for listening.